according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, and this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah chapter 21, our 21st week in this book, taking uh, one chapter per week, and so far the Lord has blessed uh, this endeavor. So we'll see if he keeps it up through all 66 chapters of Isaiah and then on into 52 chapters of Jeremiah. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, one of the more modern English uh, translations, then you maybe have a pericope heading at the top of the chapter that maybe even mentions Babylon uh, at some point. Go ahead and cross that off. I don't think it's related to historical Babylon in any respect. Although Babylon is mentioned by the time we get down to verse 9 in the lamentation of fallen, fallen is Babylon. But we're going to talk about that and we're going to see the connection of the lamentation in verse 9 with the overall oracle itself in verses 1 and following. So a lot on our plate and a lot to get through. 17 verses we've got to cover in uh, the time that's set before us. Before we get started, let's ask the Father to bless our time. Let's approach him in prayer and uh, humble ourselves under the authority of the word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We commit to you our time today, Father, for the glory of your Son. We ask for his name to be exalted and magnified. We ask, Father, for your blessings upon our time together, that we would be here for the better and not for the worse. Father, I pray that as the word goes forth, that your children would be edified, built up in the faith, and strengthened in the inner man. We pray that the truth of your word would not be impacted or impaired or limited in any way because of any human weaknesses on the part of the speaker or on the part of of any hearer sitting here this morning. Father, uh, thank you that the word of God is not dependent upon how smart we are to figure these things out but it's dependent upon how faithful you are, how faithful you are to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again this hour. Uh, Father, lead us into truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we start with the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And we have, once again, like we had in chapter 18, we have an anonymous recipient. It's an anonymous recipient. We've been dealing with a lot of nations, a lot of Gentile nations, going back to chapter 13. And in many of these chapters, in most of these chapters, Isaiah has no problem naming names. And he'll name Moab, or he'll name Babylon, or he'll name uh, Egypt. He names the Philistines. He names uh, a lot of the different people. But in chapter 18, he pronounced a message on the land of warring wings, you might recall. It was a, a nation uh, in the midst of the rivers. It was a nation that had a people tall and smooth. We talked about who might be tall and smooth and what kind of nation might be mentioned. And why did Isaiah not mention the, the nation by name? Why not give us the name of that nation? And so we have a similar example here. It's going to happen again in chapter 22. We're going to have an anonymous nation. In fact, in chapter 22, it says the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Well, what's the valley of vision? And why call it that? Now, we'll get into that next week and define what that valley of vision is. But there's a reason why he gives them these these titles and, and addresses these messages in an anonymous way rather than simply assigning, for example, Babylon, as we have it in the pericope heading. Go ahead and cross that off. Likewise, in chapter 18, if there's something in your in your pericope heading for chapter 18 that says message to Ethiopia. Cross that off, all right? Uh, Because the land that's addressed is the land beyond Ethiopia. And it's not addressing Ethiopia, it's it's addressing a land beyond Ethiopia. In other words, a territory that is beyond the limits of known geography. And uh, something similar here, the wilderness of the sea, the desert of the ocean. Kind of an interesting expression given the fact that If you're in the desert, there's no water. And if you're in the ocean, there's nothing but water. And uh, yet this is the wilderness of the sea, combining the the two terms involved here. All right. 
Midbar Yam. Midbar Yam. Almost like antonyms, and yet they're combined together. The wilderness of the Yam, the wilderness of the sea. It is not an ancient nation known to Israel in the Old Testament. There was no nation under this name, either by proper name or by reputation or by even, um, even a nickname, as it were. It is described as a terrifying land, a land that terrifies in, uh, in this verse. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. Now, that's similar to some of the expressions we had in chapter 18 because it was the inhabitants of the land in chapter 18 that were terrifying. They were tall and smooth, and everyone was afraid of those inhabitants of the land in uh, chapter 18. Slight distinction to be found here in that it's the land itself that is characterized by being uh, terrifying here in uh, the second part of verse 21. A terrifying land. Perhaps we should connect it with the people that are feared far and wide, such as we had it in chapter 18, and I tend to go that direction myself, uh, while yet leaving it open for, uh, for further study. Remember in Isaiah 18:2, with respect to this land of whirring wings, not a proper name, not uh, a name of an ancient nation in Isaiah's day. It lies beyond the rivers of Cush, we're told, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. And then those messengers are instructed to return to their homeland. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. And that was our description of this prophetic nation, the nation that will have its fulfillment in uh, the tribulation of Israel yet future. All right, so Midbar Yom, this is what we're dealing with now in chapter 18. And I am thinking of it in terms of identifying it with chapter 18, which means it might even be possibly a reference to the United States of America, okay? Although I'm not writing a book to make money to to sensationalize that. But um, it is conceivable that in the, the land of warring wings that chapter 18 deals with, it will be the United States of America once the church is removed and the tribulation is unfolding. Like I say, if I was of the sort that would write a book and market it and, and uh, get on some radio programs and, and uh, feed off of the sensationalism of it, uh, we probably could get away with a thing like that. But that's not why we're here, and we'll thank the Lord for that. All right. But we are introduced to these characters, including the treacherous one and the destroyer. Let's look at these early verses here. Uh, we're going to cover 17 of them today, but let's just pick up the first part of this. Then, well, take the first 10 verses. All right. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As the uh, the storms in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Rise up, captains, oil the shields. For thus the Lord says to me, go, station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees the riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night in my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. Well, what do you know? (laughs) They were told to look out for this. And one said, Fallen, fallen as Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. All right, those are the 10 verses we'll deal with first of all as we break this chapter down into parts. This is the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. In verse 11 and following, it's a different oracle, the oracle concerning Edom. In verse 13, it's an oracle concerning Arabia. And then that gets expanded in verses 16 and 17. So that's kind of what we have to cover between now and the, and the top of the hour. 
All right. So we have the treacherous one, the treacherous one and the destroyer. And each one of these is a fascinating study. The vocabulary is interesting. The, New Te- the Old Testament usages of these terms are interesting. The, uh, the angelic conflict information that comes up when you start to explore these things because we realize that we have an adversary in the invisible realm, that it's not only in the human realm that the warfare is taking part, but there are the fallen angels that are at war against the elect angels. And we have... Uh, aspects of destruction that we need to understand. One of the titles for destruction includes Abaddon, who is called the destroyer, and uh, some of the other names as the abyss is unlocked and the demons come flooded out at the, in the great tribulation. So there is a wealth of teaching that right here, these verses would plunge us into. And if we were doing a verse-by-verse study instead of the overview we're doing, this, this chapter would take a lot of work. We would take an awful lot of work to understand the treacherous one and the destroyer. It is a theme that comes back again uh, a couple of times. In chapter 24, half of this comes back. The term for treacherous one comes back. But in uh, chapter 33, we have both of these terms once again in tandem. So uh, we won't spend a lot of time on it today, but we can at least take a peek in uh, chapter 24. And why is this significant? Well, three weeks from now you'll see. Um, 24, 25, 26, 27, that stretch of Isaiah, those four chapters there, is sometimes called the mini-apocalypse, right? Or Isaiah's apocalypse, or Isaiah's mini-apocalypse. It's almost like the book of Revelation in a condensed form. You've got a lot of symbolism, you've got a lot of prophecies, and apocalyptic literature would be the genre uh, of what we're dealing with. As you see in Isaiah 24, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. That's not a happy message, all right? There are grim things coming up. That's why you and I need to be oriented to truth. We need to be stable in the Word of God. We need to be walking by faith, uh, yoked to Jesus Christ, so that we're not thrown into turmoil. We're not tossed to and fro by these winds of doctrine. If uh, nobody else in this world has stability, we better stand forth with stability and truth. So that's what we deal with in these chapters. And in the midst of chapter 24, down to verse 16... From the ends of the earth we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. And of course, we know our Savior. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, because the treacherous or the treacherous one deals treacherously. And so we have the antithesis of the righteous one is our Savior, Christ. And then the antithesis then is the treacherous one, which would be Antichrist in the, in the coming tribulation. So the treacherous deal treacherously. The treacherous deal very treacherously. Okay? So we'll be dealing with that. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. And uh, the blessings we have to not be earth dwellers by the time the uh, tribulation unfolds. The trumpet will sound. We will actually be with the Lord in heaven before the, uh, the earth dwellers have to deal with the unleashing of God's wrath in the coming tribulation. All right, so stay tuned. We'll be there in three weeks and deal with all the, the wrath of, uh, of the apocalypse there. Uh, over to chapter 33. Over to chapter 33. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others do not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. And there is pending judgment, there is pending destruction that will come upon them related to what happens when the Lord returns at Armageddon, when the Lord lays hold of his enemies and casts them into the lake of fire for all eternity. Uh, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of of distress. See, it's, uh, the period of, of tribulation on earth is, is unlike any day that's ever been before. And it's going to be a day whereby a third of the earth is going to die, and then a third of the earth is going to die, and then a third of the earth is going to die. And every single time one of these waves comes through, there are fewer and fewer survivors to face the next test, to face the next expression of the wrath of God. And uh, that's the context, by the way, in which we have the, the, the promise 
the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay? It has nothing to do with the Arminian view of losing your eternal life or somehow becoming uh, you know, unsaved. It has to do with surviving the tribulation and living physically to see the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth in uh, the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, so this uh, theme of the treacherous one and this theme of the destroyer are themes that are going to come back again and again. They're simply introduced here as uh, we deal with it in uh, chapter 21. But I think it's vital that we understand that everything in this chapter, when we find our parallels in Revelation, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, when we find our parallels, none of this is Old Testament in its fulfillment. This whole chapter is eschatological. This whole chapter is looking ahead to tribulation and second advent. So for us today in 2015, right? That's where we are. 2015 AD, okay? For us today, we're still looking yet future for these things to be fulfilled. And if you're reading some kind of commentary that tries to reinterpret this chapter to point back to Nebuchadnezzar at some point, um, that's, that's a problematic interpretation for a whole host of, a whole host of reasons. All right. It's a harsh vision, and Isaiah is left terrified by it. Isaiah is terrified by this vision, which is actually a common experience for the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah is terrified by this vision, and there's other examples. Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, fairly common for an Old Testament prophet to, first, even if he understands the message, that it scares the willies out of him, then in Probably, in a lot of cases, not only does it terrify him, but he doesn't even understand what it means. What's this all about? As the prophets are left uh, deciding whether they're going to be obedient to the Lord or not. And it's much easier to be a false prophet and give the people what they want to hear. It's much better to, to say, relax, Babylon is not, a, not to fear, and we're going to be delivered, and God is smiling on us, and don't worry about the Babylonians. See, Jeremiah had a host of false prophets that were competing with his message in his day and age. And yet he was the one with the true message. He was the one sent from the Father. All right, so grab these real quickly. won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's, uh, it's important to identify that what it was the Old Testament prophets were asked to go through and then ask yourself, are we expected to uh, go through any less in our day and age? Are we expected to compromise in our message? What if the Lord um, expects us to deliver an unpopular message? Do we back down just because it's not popular? Jeremiah 4.19. You know, do we avoid a verse because we go, ooh, that's not going to go over well. <laughs> that's going to make people mad. I better not, better not push that. All right, Jeremiah 4.19, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. O oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, O oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed for the whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated, my curtains in an instant. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? And uh, for my people, I love this, my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they do not know. All right? To do good, they do not know. And then I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu wabohu, formless and void, into the heavens, and they had no light. All right? I'm going to stop there and just tease you with that. But this is the tohu wabohu, formless and void, you read about in Genesis 1-2. All right, this introduces themes and concepts that take us to some of the deepest realms of angelic conflict information. And uh, you'll note the impact that it had on uh, Jeremiah's soul. Again, back to verse 19. My soul, my soul, I'm in anguish. Oh, my heart. You know, it hurts when you have to give the truth and you realize it's going to be rejected by the people that need to hear it the most. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 and verse 28. I'm not sure why I listed those out of order. Ezekiel comes before Daniel in the book order. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 and 28. Here Daniel receives this vision, including the Ancient of Days who stands before, or the, the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days in his victory, in his, in his exaltation. And then the, the defeat of Antichrist and the other darkness that happens on the earth. But in Daniel 7, 15, it says, As for me... Daniel, 
My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And so he approaches one of the, the, the standby angels that were standing by, and the bystanders, and tries to get more of his questions answered. Verse 28 of the same chapter. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, uh, alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Next chapter in 827. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. All right. The impact of the message there in chapter 8. It comes back again in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. And you know what? Maybe, uh, maybe he just gets you to your knees, and then maybe he gets you to your feet. And uh, just you take it step by step. <laughs> okay? And uh, so he falls on his face in Daniel chapter 10. Verse 7 says, A great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And then gradually, in the rest of this chapter, he's going to be woken up, he's going to be brought to his knees, he's going to be brought to where he can stand, just uh, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, turns his face again to the ground in verse 15 to become speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. In any event, there it is. Uh, other examples would include Ezekiel 9.8 and Ezekiel 11.13. All these examples. It makes me happy I'm not an Old Testament prophet. Like we saw last week, Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years and all the different things that the Lord asked for him to do. Wow. Ezekiel chapter 9, and he watches the glory depart. He watches the, the Shekinah glory depart from uh, Jerusalem. He sees uh, the destroyer come. That's a rough message. Verse 5, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity. Do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Okay? And this was historically fulfilled. This happened in 586 B.C. Foreshadowing what's going to happen in the, in the tribulation. And so he said to them in verse 7, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people of the city. And as they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? No, he already preserved a remnant. The truth is, and Ezekiel had to learn this, the remnant was already in Babylon before the destruction came to Jerusalem. He carried them away into captivity, and that was how he spared the remnant even before he applied the judgment to, uh, to Jerusalem. Finally, chapter 11 and verse 13 of Ezekiel. I can't imagine this. This has never happened to me in the course of preaching. It came about as I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, died. <laughs> you know, you're rebuking somebody in the process of your message, and he drops dead right there in the middle of Sunday services. Well, that, that's, uh, that would get my attention. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? All right. So we have the, uh, the nation of Midbar Yom, not stated. We have the treacherous one and the destroyer in view and what's happening in the judgment upon the nation of Israel. The terror that it left behind in Isaiah's soul that he had to receive a message like this. He had to faithfully deliver a message like this. And then finally, the Lord instructs Ezekiel or Isaiah to post a lookout. He says, post a lookout. Don't ignore the message. Pay attention to the message. Post a lookout. Isaiah is a great prophet for referencing lookouts. 
Uh, not only in this chapter, but we've got some upcoming chapters where uh, the ministry of prayer is called Watchmen on the Wall. We should be suited up in our armor. We should be on the wall. We do that in prayer when we come together for prayer meetings like Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or other prayer meetings that may take place. The Lord instructs Isaiah to post a lookout in verse 6, so he does so. And this lookout reports a vision. He reports what he sees, and he was expected to see this. The Lord said, here's what you're going to see. And when you see it, pay especially close attention when you see it. And this is what his lookout will do. What we find here is a preview for what will ultimately be fulfilled, or what will be expanded in more detail by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. We have a message that gets unfolded to a greater degree in Revelation chapter 18. But here we have the preview for it. The verse 6 and then verses 7 through 10 as the Lord instructs Isaiah to post a lookout. Verse 6, for thus the Lord says to me, go station a lookout and let him report what he sees. Now we don't know this guy's name unless his name is Ariel, uh, which could be. Uh, There is a switch of terms in verse 8. There's even a manuscript question in verse 8. Is it the lookout who called? O Lord, I stand continually. Or is the lookout, is is his proper name given here? Is the name Ariel? Is the name a reference to uh, the lion that, uh, that calls out here? And this would be something we would stop and spend some time with if we were following a different format than we are. But here's the lookout. And it's not Isaiah who's serving this purpose. Isaiah is appointing the watchman. Isaiah is calling on somebody else to serve this function so that it's not only his word that the people of Israel have to listen to. All right, there's going to be a second witness here that's going to work in tandem with Isaiah. And they ought to pay attention to whoever, if his, I don't mind calling him Ariel, we can give that a proper name like we have here in verse 8, so that they ought to pay attention to both Isaiah and Ariel here in this chapter. Because the Lord is confirming these things by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, then let him pay close attention, very close attention. You can imagine if on a Sunday morning your pastor said, "Uh, by the way, one night this week, sometime later this week, you're going to have a dream about um, whatever, you know, Snow White, the Seven Dwarves, and a Ferrari. Okay? You can tell I'm feeling better. That just came out of nowhere. Now, how creepy would it be if some night this week you dream about Snow White, the Seven Dwarves, and and a Ferrari, okay? Um, That would be weird, all right? But here's a prophet saying, this is the vision you're going to see. And when you see it, pay attention because there will be additional things in that vision. I'm warning you about it, but you're the one that has to report what you see. So that I'm not claiming credit for it. I don't even know the details, but you're going to tell us the details when that dream is given to you. And Isaiah has the opportunity to appoint this watchman to be on the alert. And ultimately, here we are in the church age. We have the full benefit of all the Old Testament prophecies combined with our New Testament perspective. We're not terrified of Armageddon. We're not terrified of the tribulation of Israel. All right? We're not tossed to and fro. We're stable because we have the perspective that he's blessed us with here. All right, so pay close attention. Pay very close attention. And you say, well, that's too much work. (laughs) Come on. Do we really need to worry about this? Can't I just, you know, show up in church, get a little 10-minute feel-good thing, and then drop some money in the plate and go home? We'll call it good and we'll call it done. Not what God calls us to do. He calls us to study to show ourselves approved, to rightly divide the word of truth, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that includes the tough messages. And so the lookout called, or Ariel called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night on my guard post. And I love that. Here's the humble obedience. And you notice he wasn't told how long this was going to take. (laughs) He wasn't told him. In my crazy example, I said, sometime this week you're going to get that prayer. Or you're going to get that, that, that dream, right? The lookout wasn't told how long to wait. He wasn't told it would be within a certain number of days. When we start praying over things, are we told that there's an expiration date on these prayers? In some of these testings, we've been praying for months. We've been praying for years. When, when do these prayer assignments come to an end? Yeah. When he brings them to an end. 
So the lookout says, I'm here, Lord. I'm stationed every night at my guard post. I'm here, Lord. I'm here in prayer. All right? And this is the beautiful thing, uh, that, uh, that God allows each one of us to participate in this ministry. Not everyone's a pastor. Not everyone's a Sunday school teacher. Not everyone's a deacon. But everyone can pray. Everyone can join in these prayers. We can appreciate that and uh, different applications there. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. <laughs> wow, you said I was going to see this. And however many days it took, it got fulfilled and he sees it. Just like you said, a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. This was the new information. This is what was going to be revealed once the vision unfolded. And Isaiah didn't know what the vision was going to be. Isaiah just warned the lookout that he was going to learn something once he saw the vision. And this is what he was expected to learn. This was the message he was expected to communicate. So he shares it with Isaiah. Isaiah shares it in Scripture. And we have a chance to see it. Not only is it the fall of Babylon, but it's the idolatry behind Babylon that gets destroyed. It's the whole system that is opposed to God that's that's summarized by the title Babel. That's summarized by the title Babylon and always has been throughout all of Scripture. And so we see the preview for what will be given greater detail in uh, Revelation chapter 18. You think, goodness gracious, why... Why does God reveal things like this? <laughs> right? You know, if I was God, I would just spell it out in chronological order and say, there you go, be done with it. Well, good thing we're not God. Okay? And he's got a reason for this. He's got a reason for unfolding a little here and a little there. Line upon line, precept upon precept. And there are issues that have to be kept reserved. There are issues that cannot be, like the church, mystery doctrine, cannot be unveiled to Old Testament believers. But there's also um, tribulational material that God couldn't give to his Hebrew prophets. And so he reserved them for the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And much of chapters, really chapters 6 through 19, doesn't pertain to the church at all. The Apostle John recorded it in the Greek New Testament, but it's going to have the greatest application once we're out of here. Once the church is raptured and those left behind the 144,000 and all the folks that get saved, those Jewish evangelists and all the the remnant of Israel, you think they're going to pay attention to Revelation? You bet. Because that's what brings together Isaiah through Malachi. That's what ties together the Old Testament prophetic message. All right. Revelation 18, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we have almost word for word, we have identical language and terminology to what Isaiah, what Isaiah's buddy, the watchman, the lookout, uh, Ariel, if you want to call him that, what Ariel dreamed about, recorded by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 21. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Think about these haunts. Think about the function these haunts are going to have during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. What a benefit that's going to be. And uh, we can limit the uh, impact that fallen angels and demons have. You know, I wonder sometimes if Pastor Cliff and I, if we're dealing with demons, and why doctors can't, you know, they can't figure out what's up with these migraines. Well, you know, you're doing CAT scans and MRIs and whatever. You got a, you got a demon scanner you can hook me up to and see what's sparking these things well in the coming tribulation there's going to be zones uh you think of them as uh as uh you know like they're called here haunts dwelling places prisons and uh if you've got a demoniac the best thing to do for that demoniac is call him to walk through this uh this zone because he'll walk into the zone with the demon and walk out and the demon's trapped behind possibly as a as a mechanism for this who knows All right. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality. See, it's her idolatry that has to be destroyed. And it becomes a global idolatry. That's what Isaiah saw in in chapter 21. Not only has Babylon fallen, but the idolatry is being brought to an end. The false gods behind the, uh, the religion of Babylon. 
So here's what the lookout is expected to do. And uh, what we're dealing with here. All right. Well, that's one oracle. There's two more in this chapter. Isaiah's next oracle, uh, oracle concerns Duma or Edom. And we've got Edom in verse 11, and we've got Arabia in verse 13. The manuscript actually says Duma rather than Edom, and yet there's a reason for that. I have no question that it is Edom. Duma is a city within Edom, and uh, even as a play on words, some of the, the DM in Duma matches up with the DM in Edom, all right, uh, as far as the Hebrew is concerned anyway. The oracle concerning Edom or Duma, which keeps calling, one keeps calling to me from Seir. And that was the mountain that the Edomites were given as their possession. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? And so the watchman says, morning comes, but also the night. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. And so there's much now in this oracle that's kind of fun to, to deal with. The poetry is, is really neat, and it'd be really fun to sit down and run through the poetry with you, but not this hour, <laughs> okay? Um, but this is what they do. The destroyer destroys, okay? The treacherous one is treacherous. It's, it's almost like saying the pastor pastors. Well, yeah, that's what he is. That's what he does. Okay. In English, we put the er on the end of verbs and we make them into, into nouns, right? What does a farmer do? He farms. What does a pastor do? He pastors. What does a fisher, you know, so we put the er on the end of our nouns or on the end of our verbs and we make nouns out of them. And that's what we have here. We have the nouns of participles and we have the verbs and that's what they do. The treacherous one is treacherous. The destroyer destroys. The watchman watches. All right. And he's asking, how far gone is the night? And the answer he gets is really a non-answer. And he says, well, if you're going to inquire, inquire. The inquiring one needs to inquire and come back again. All right. Come back again. Because watchmen aren't told when the answer is going to come. Watchmen just have to stay on the alert. You don't want to be on the alert for six weeks and find out it's a seven-week test. Okay, and you gave up on it a week too early and failed to see the answer to the prayer because you got sick of waiting. All right. Now, the watchman here is different from the lookout. We want to be clear on that. Different terms, different Hebrew terms between a lookout and a watchman, which is unfortunate. If I uh, give my own cha- translation of this chapter, I actually... I prefer watchman to tra- to, as a translation for the first term, but unfortunately uh, it was already rendered as lookout in uh, verse 6 and verse 8. I would rather call that the watchman and then do something different here. Call this guy the keeper. The keeper. But, oh well, we got the Bible we got, right? New American Standard. Uh, keeper, how far gone is the night? Keeper, how far gone is the night? This is what he's asked. Isaiah may have posted a lookout, but someone from Mount Seir called upon Isaiah as the watchman or the keeper. I prefer to think of it as keeper. But we'll stick with the term as you have it printed in your Bible. Remember when, when Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Okay, that's this verb here. All right, we've got other keepers. There's officials that are keepers of the wardrobe or keepers of the, of the, of the, the Torah or keepers of this or keepers of that. We've got a lot of keepers in the Old Testament, and this is the verb, the shamer verb that's used here. And so I would rather use this as keeper and put watchman in the earlier paragraph. But that's just me. So here is somebody. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Well, what, what's he doing that for? Why would, why would an Edomite prophet ask a Jewish prophet about something going on? Well, if the Edomite prophet came to realize that salvation is from the Jews then an Edomite prophet might be curious to see what a Jewish prophet would have to say about something like this. And uh, you might expect it, and that's kind of a clue of what we have here. There comes a point after the captivity when the Edomites, certain uh, components within the Edomites started to get interested in 
the Scriptures. Started to get interested in the Hebrew Bible, in, the, in Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And they started to, to send people to live in the land of Israel. They started to send colonists to live within the boundaries of the Jewish people to learn from the Jewish people. And some of those Edomites got pretty uh, positive towards what we would call Old Testament truth. And then uh, other conflict arose. <laughs> and uh, you would think that the Jews would be happy to have some of the Edomites get on board with doctrine, and yet, well, they were still Edomites at the end of the day, and there were some racial issues that would spark up. But this is the backdrop for Herod the Great. Herod's father was one that I think was positive to the Old Testament. All right, not Herod. Well, Herod wasn't saved, but his father was. I'm convinced of that. In any event, we have a, an interesting rebuke that takes place here. This uh, somebody is calling out to Isaiah and saying, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? Repeats it twice. Urgency on it, I suppose. Um, and the answer he gets is not what he was looking forward to. Well, all right. It's almost morning, but another night's right behind it, so don't get too excited. <laughs> okay? Morning comes, but also night. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. And how often do we do this? Okay? The watchman gives a remarkable non-answer. The watchman here gives a remarkable non-answer. He gives the real answer. He doesn't actually give the specific answer. But he gives a remarkable non-answer. He says, morning comes, but also night. Twice they asked about the night. How far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? He doesn't say anything about the night. He starts off by saying, well, morning comes, but also night. They were asking about night. He tells them about morning. Twice they asked about the night, but what they wanted to know was about the coming morning. It's, 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 I find it similar to when Abraham was praying for Lot, but he never mentioned Lot. <laughs> Abraham is begging the Lord to spare Sodom, and Abraham uh, is, 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 is praying for his nephew. And he's talking about, well, maybe there's 50 righteous in Sodom. You know, will you spare Sodom? And the Lord said, yeah. Well, maybe I kind of overestimated. Maybe it's only 45. Will you spare Sodom? God said, yeah. Well, 45 might still be too high. Maybe, maybe 40. If there's 40 believers... Will you spare Sodom? And, and Abraham keeps going back and going back and going back. You know the chapter I'm talking about? And he talks him down from 50 to 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And that's where he stops. He stops with 10. And so Sodom gets destroyed. And he never once mentions Lot by name. Not once in all those prayers. Going back again and again and again. But the next chapter was very interesting. It says the Lord remembered Lot because of Abraham's prayer. <laughs> okay? See, God looks on our heart. He knows what we're really trying to ask for, even if we don't bring ourselves to ask for it. Even if we're too stupid in our prayers to just bluntly lay it out there. We shouldn't be. We should just say, Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm concerned about. This is who I'm praying for. And I'm not sure how to say it or why to say it, but I know this is what's on my heart, and I'm giving it to you, Lord. And so here they are asking, how far gone is the night? How far gone is the night? And that's not the issue. He says, the day is coming. Morning comes. You didn't ask about the morning. You just asked about the night. Why is that so common? <laughs> Why? You know, we get a test. And what do we want to know about the test? Well, when's it going to be over? Right? I've got an employment test. or I've got a lack of employment test. I'm out of work right now. And so somebody says, well, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And, and what are they praying for? An end of that test. <laughs> when's the test going to be over? In other words, when do I get a job? When, I, when can I start working again? Or a health test. When's that going to be over? Or some other kind of test. When's that going to be over? And we're asking the wrong question. Quit asking when it's going to be over. Start asking, what am I learning through this? What is the dawn that's about to arise? What is the light that's about to shine? What is it I'm going to see that I wouldn't have seen had, had the Lord not brought me through this, through this darkness? You know, twice they asked about night, but what they wanted to know was about the coming morning. They wouldn't bring themselves to ask that. So he tells them, all right, morning's coming. That's what you really want to know. But also night. And a night that's even darker than the night you're concerned about now. It's interesting. If the, uh, if the curious Edomite really wants to know, then he should come back and ask the right question. He says, if you're going to inquire, inquire and come back again. 
If you're going to inquire, inquire. He says, come back again. He says, right now you're asking the wrong question. You're here for the wrong reasons. The curious Edomite, whoever he was, we're not giving a name here, just one, keeps calling to me from Seir, whoever he is. If the curious Edomite really wants to know, then he should come back and he should ask the right question. You want to inquire? Inquire. But come back again. You know, there's going to be another, there's going to be a future Edomite. He'll have a similar question. But he doesn't really want to know the truth either. Okay, I'm talking about Herod. And he's going to ask, well, where's the Christ going to be born? Where's the Christ going to be born? And they tell him, well, Bethlehem. Okay? But he didn't want to go and worship. That's what he said. Goodness, where does the time go? Matthew chapter 2. You know Herod was an Edomite? Matthew chapter 2. You know how insulting that was to the Jewish people when, uh, when uh, Caesar made Herod king of the Jews? <laughs> wow. And so in there, the Jewish people are sitting under an Edomite king, hating the Edomites and hating the Romans that put the Edomite on the throne. But here come the Magi. They show up. They visit in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right? Just like Doug sings it. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them. See, if you're going to inquire, inquire. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And they quote Micah here. This has been, this has been on the record for 700 years. No secret. And then verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi, determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So the star showed up two years ago, and he says, okay. And they sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. But he's got no intent. He, he's going to go and murder all those babies. He's going to go and kill all those boys. find it interesting. Our third oracle. The third oracle of this chapter concerns Arabia. Verses 13 through 15, and then a follow-up, thus says the Lord, in verses 16 and 17. The oracle about Arabia. The uh, descendants of, uh, you know, these are, these are close kins with the Jewish people. The Edomites, of course, are the twin nation to Israel. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. The Jewish people are the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites are the descendants of, of Esau. And they are probably the closest of all the, the Gentiles, of all the Goim nations to Israel, would be the twin nation of Edom. But then come the Arabs. And the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, or they are descendants of uh, the Keturah descendants of Abraham. They're all Abrahamic. These Arabians are all uh, different tribes descended of, of Abraham. Remember, Abraham is a father of a multitude of peoples. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the swords and from the drawn swords and from the bent bow and from the press of battle. The message to Arabia is not a happy message. They're going to become uh, fugitives. They're going to be fleeing. They're going to be driven from their homeland. They're going to suffer in military defeat. Commerce is disrupted. Civilian life is disrupted. Everyone flees because of the, uh, the, uh, the military defeat and the invasion. Caravans and inhabitants of Arabian tribes will become thicket-hiding fugitives <laughs> fleeing from the invaders. I believe it's eschatological when I connect it with Jeremiah 25. Not everybody connects it with Jeremiah 25, but I believe we can take this oracle and connect it with Jeremiah 25, verses 23 and 24, and in that connection, it's quite clearly, it's eschatological. It's, it's the coming tribulation. All right? You know, we better, if we don't thank our faithful Heavenly Father for the military He's blessed our nation with, for the freedoms that are secured, and we know that it's not the, the earthly soldiers that are doing it, but it's God who blessed us this way, and through them, our freedoms have been preserved. But what happens to your uh, commercial life? What happens to your economy? if you're constantly under invasion. 
What happens to your civilian life? Even your, your inhabitants have to flee and find somewhere else to live. Thickets, if nothing else. Because there's other people now living in your cities, living in your towns, living in your homes. Other invaders coming through. Within one year of this message, Kedar is going to be destroyed. Kedar is going to be destroyed. I'm going to wrap this up because we've got communion today. Yeah, um, I won't. I won't turn to Jeremiah 25. I'm just out of time, but you can t- take a look at Jeremiah 25 verses 23 and 24. Within one year of Isaiah's utterance, Kedar will be destroyed. Described here, verse. Thus says the Lord: In a year, as a hired man would count it, so it could even be shorter than a year. Because how does a hired man count a year? Well, it's going to be seasonal. All right, there's going to be the hired man will will probably wrap up his year before the off-season or before, depending on what industry he's in or what kind of work he does. But it could be less than a calendar year. As a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. And the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, they were known for their archery, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. You know the most impressive thing about that? Is that if it doesn't get fulfilled within a year of being uttered, they can stone Isaiah for being a false prophet. All right? If it doesn't happen within a year, okay? Now, if, if, if Isaiah was a huckster or some kind of a charlatan or some kind of a, you know, a false prophet, he could spout all kinds of things and, and be like Nostradamus and just kind of push them all off in the distant future and make them kind of generic and kind of bland and kind of nonspecific. And, and then no one's going to know because he'll be long dead before any of this stuff is ever proven to be false. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't operate that way. He gives his prophets short-term ministries, uh, short-term prophecies, as well as long-term prophecies. And when this one gets fulfilled historically, when Kedar is overrun historically, within a year as a hired man counts it, that gets your attention, does it not? And then you start to think, wow, what about this virgin shall conceive and bear a son? <laughs> Maybe that's a message I should pay attention to. What about this wonderful counselor, eternal father, prince of peace? Maybe I ought to pay attention to that message too. Because these long-term prophecies were coming from the same God through the same prophet as these short-term prophecies. And since these were fulfilled literally, those have to be fulfilled literally. This is where we generate our hermeneutic and where we generate our appreciation for the literal rendering of these prophetic messages. All right. Well, you want more on Kedar. It's not mentioned very often in the Old Testament. Uh, it does show up in Song of Solomon, though. The, uh, they were famous for their black sheep and uh, the tents that they would manufacture out of the wool of those black sheep. But anyway, we're just out of time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, providing for the Word of God to go forth, for the health and strength and memory and capacity to speak your truth. The recognition, Father, that it's not the human involved in the process anyway. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of our understanding. Father, I thank you for Communion Sunday. It comes about once a month, and it, uh, it's always such a short Sunday. Man, the, the hour just flies by, but here we are, Father. And again, it's our blessing. It's our blessing to humble ourselves before you. It's a blessing to remind ourselves, Father, of your truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this time we like to have a communion hymn as... uh